are just the beginning. My name is Janet Gunter from the Restart Project, and I'm joined by Hugo Valaudi, my partner in crime. Hello. Um, yeah, in this episode, okay, we're going to talk about a big company. It's a company we often talk about, um, but today we're a little bit inspired by Mr. Robot, so we're going to call them Peach. <laughs> I love peaches. <laughs> Peach sits on a mountain of offshore cash. They make compelling products that everybody wants. In fact, I have one in front of me right now. Some claim Peach has been lost since its founder died. Well, Peach puts on these events. They're really slick, staged, managed events where new products are unveiled to an audience of adoring fanboys. Um, we also think they're probably targeted to, towards the shareholders and investors. Um, against the backdrop of a seemingly noble battle with the FBI uh, around our privacy... Last week, Peach surprised everyone by making some values-driven announcements before revealing the latest Goldilocks tweaks to their fashionable products. So um, we're going to start with the rather surprising intervention from uh, one of Apple's VPs, the, um, Lisa Jackson, who heads up their environmental uh, work. And we're going, to, we're going to do a little bit of deconstructing of what Peach <laughs> had to tell us. So here's Lisa Jackson. In fact, we're now 100% renewable in 23 countries around the world. Now, in some places, we're able to purchase renewable energy right from the grid, from existing sources. But that's not always possible, which has led us to some pretty innovative solutions. In Sichuan Province, China, we found a way to build a 40-megawatt solar farm without disturbing the local population. Yaks. <laughs> the innovation is in building a system that allows for electricity generation and hay production for the local yak ranchers. That solar project is producing more than enough electricity to power our 34 retail stores and our 19 offices in the country that makes our facilities there carbon neutral. So this is a pretty big claim that Peach is making, that they're uh, carbon neutral, that they're carbon neutral in China, which is quite interesting to us because uh, we all know that everything that Peach makes is manufactured in China. Um, and this is, while we obviously praise them for, okay, figuring out how to put solar panels next to yaks. <laughs> and, the yaks seems happy about it. Yeah, although I might want to go talk to them before listening to more yakking. Um, I, do, I do think it's really important to call Apple on this one. Um, and it is, and it, while praising them for cleaning up the data centers and they're cleaning up the carbon footprint of their retail, which is gigantic, great. We need to call them on this one. Why, why, do you, why is that, Ugo? Because there's a slight caveat to this conversation. And when they talk about their facilities in China, they refer to their stores and their offices. So if they talk about making it all powered by renewables, they're talking about the stores, the big flashy stores that now are powered by renewable energy and the office people that work in Apple offices typing at a computer. Oh, but offices. Oh, sorry. <laughs> peach offices, excuse me, using peach branded um, devices. But they're not talking about the huge, gigantic peach elephant in the room, which is the manufacturing of all of these devices, which happens to be taking place in By China. a company called BadgerCon. Yes. 
<laughs> and uh, and actually, the, in a sense, Lisa is uh, uh, right in saying that um, this is not their facility because it's not it's a facility not owned by Peach where they manufacture, but it is the gigantic elephant in the room. Yeah, and for I mean, for us, like I guess, uh, while we can we do praise Apple. Uh, Sorry, Peach, <laughs> for the things that they do, um, they do, that they have innovated in. For example, they create product reports, environmental reports about yes. the environmental impact of each product. So this is precisely how we can calculate the carbon footprint in manufacture in China of their products. And um, Peach itself has taught us through this wonderful reports that actually 85% of all of the environmental impact of these devices that Peach... Of like, for example, the latest The iPhone. latest... Uh, <laughs> the latest Peach mobile. iPhone <laughs> <laughs> um, is... happens at manufacturing, which means that that 85%, which is a gigantic proportion if you look at the big cake, um, it's not necessarily powered up by renewables um, and that is what we should be con concentrating on um, Lisa also mentions I don't know if you were going to play this bit um, concentrate so much on how devices are packaged and this has been an obsession of manufacturers but it's easy to talk about these things about using paper or plastic it's less easy to discuss how you source your materials for the devices and how much energy, water, and et cetera, et cetera, you're using when you're manufacturing them. And we we did uh, do a calculation, I believe, of the carbon footprint of the uh, the latest uh, Peach phone, um, which was something around. It was something of the magnitude of the carbon footprint of three boroughs in London. Yes, and it, they were Westminster. Camden and Lambeth, if yeah, I'm not so wrong. Yeah, so if you just take a big slice of London, the, probably the most carbon intensive, one of the most carbon intensive slices, um, that is the total global carbon footprint of the manufacturer. For of, one year. For one year of one of their phones. So the question for us is how they can really be claiming to be carbon neutral when they completely, uh, when they're completely leaving that out of the equation. Um, and, yeah, frankly, no amount of um, good work on packaging or buying of forests um, is going to help that. And I guess the interesting point is that if they can, if they can innovate in Sichuan with the yaks and the solar, why can't they help their contractors who make the phones also clean up energy? And, and maybe that's – I mean, knowing, knowing this company, maybe they're already working on it in secret – um, but it's something we should push them for. And, and they know. do mention that they uh, that they push their um, ch supply chain in doing the same. And we don't have enough data to be able to yeah. have a, an informed opinion on this. I mean, we know that they push their the contractors and suppliers in so many other ways. And so... The question is, okay, um, how are they going to push on this one? But on the other hand, as you were pointing earlier, actually, you know, they're leading on this because we have not seen any other manufacturer start a product launch uh, talking about the environment. Yeah, so but the I, issue is... I know, but for me anyway... Are they spinning this or... That's what I question. Yeah, so so if, I, if I find out later they're working in secret to clean up their suppliers, you know, the, the energy sources that, that go into manufacture, then yes, mm -hmm. I will be. If I, if I find that, you know, five years later nothing has changed, then this is definitely some very, very uh, costly and convincing greenwashing going on. 
Um, speaking of costly and expensive greenwashing, the next clip we're going to play from uh, the Peach event um, is about a very compelling and st- strangely, on the, at the same time, cute and a little bit scary um, R&D project of Peach. Um, so I'm just going to start with this clip. Means considering what happens to a product at every stage of its life cycle. Meet Liam. When it's time, Liam deconstructs your iPhone. Parts are detected and removed and separated. So the materials inside those parts can be repurposed. To rescue cobalt and lithium from the battery, separate the gold and copper in the camera, extract silver and platinum from the main logic board, so the materials in your iPhone can live on. Because in a world with limited resources, some things can't be replaced. Okay, wow. That was a very... um High production value, very in- compelling uh, little clip. Um, you, uh, as radio listeners, you'll you'll it'll be lost on you that in that clip uh, they they showed a screw um, being suctioned out of out of phone. But it turns out, of course, that that screw, the particular kind of screw they showed, which everybody could unscrew in their home, which is a Phillips head, is not actually the screw that's used on iPhones. In fact, iPhones notoriously have screws which do not allow the average consumer to open them. Since the iPhone 4. Okay. So Liam the robot. I mean, what did you make of it, Hugo? Liam the recycling robot. So you see, the the problem I have with that is that I love Wally. And so I... I love a different type of robot, like a robot that goes and scavenges, but finds, uh, you know, like passion in what it does. And it's not as cold and it's not as perfect, but actually can be multiplied much more. I didn't think more. there was very much that was very cuddly about Liam, though. No, that's frankly. what I mean. Okay. I, I love Wally. I don't like the coldness of Liam. Yeah, Liam and, looked more like like a surgical robot or something. Exactly. So he had good music, though. Yeah, good music to dance to while he <laughs> disassembles things. So my main problem with Liam actually is something that I didn't see a lot of people commenting on online, and it's that okay, that's wonderful that they've designed this initial robot which they are installing in California to take care of recycling, allegedly iPhone 6. Now, iPhone 6 don't really need to be recycled because they are at most two years old. Okay, but eventually they will be. Eventually they will. Eventually they will. But I would hope that uh, they get reused and... uh, for parts before disassembling them for now. And, um, well, it's a compelling number that they are actually able to disassemble one of these phones in 11 seconds using Liam. That is incredible in a way. But it also shows the limit that even if Liam was to work nonstop 360 days a year for 24 hours, it would still only be able to disassemble a fraction of all the iPhones that have been sold in that year. So, and it costs probably a fortune and it's not like an open source technology that every recycler in across the world uh, will be able to implement. So, 
Yeah, so Janet, um, I I remember that you had plans to visit a recycling facility uh, yeah. last week. In exactly fact, the same day. It was the, so everyone was sending me these emails like, you've got to see this amazing uh, peach robot called Liam. And um, it was the same day that I was going to a Maybe e-waste a, recycling facility. It's a coincidence. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but I'm telling you... Uh, the recycling of e-waste looks like something completely different than what you see in that um, nice, uh, amazing uh, Apple video. Uh, what I saw was actually rather shocking. I mean, because you and I work on, we put so much care and TLC into the things that come to our events. And we really, we have this just appreciation for the in, the intrinsic value of things. And to go to a place where you see, um, where you literally see uh, these massive uh, machines like pushing crushing dropping lifting smashing things that um maybe only a couple of weeks ago functioned or had some value for people it was a little bit shocking for me um talking to the people at sweep who run this facility um they were saying that they because of the way that uh cons- household consumer e-waste is collected um it is really difficult to to figure out how to pull potentially um, repairable or um, reusable devices from the waste stream. So what you see essentially is like a mountain of things that you can recognize. Some of them potentially really high quality or formerly high quality, like Dyson Hoovers and um, a KitchenAid mixer, for example, and stuff that, you know, probably lasted a long time. You just see it being like swept around, crushed, smashed. And it basically just, uh, there's a bit of a sort that happens for LCD screens for toxic re- toxicity reasons. But everything else just goes down a conveyor belt and is slowly sorted. And it's it's quite elaborate, the way in which materials are separated and the way things are shredded. But in a sense, everything is treated the same way. And so in looking at, thinking about the iPhone, um, for probably for most recyclers the iPhone is literally just shredded i mean because because as you said the the knowledge about how to disassemble it so quickly is in a sense proprietary it's not being offered up to the recyclers that are going to have to deal with these devices in most parts of the world um oftentimes there is no economic model for real disassembly like what you see with Liam robot their only real economic model is put it through a shredder and use um you know, centrifugal force and things and little blowers and things to separate out uh, materials. But hmm. but it's not nearly as efficient as what you see in Liam the Robot. And it really had me pause, you know, seeing it. Yeah, so I guess what the Liam story uh, tells us is it's hinting at a future where manufacturers will bring back their own products back to the factory and uh, re-extract value from the products and hopefully reuse the parts in their own remanufacturing, which is not what Liam is doing, by the way. And that's another... Not yet, anyway. Not yet. Yeah. Like, they're helping to use some parts to manufacture solar panels, for example. Uh, but they hope that in the future, it will lead to a different approach to reusing some of the components in further design of uh, peach products. But the question then is, okay, so the, this facility I visited in Kent, it doesn't, I wouldn't say it employs, you know, it employs huge, as many people as, say, like a factory would, uh, you know, assembling things. However, it does employ quite a few people. Um, those are jobs that are low... In in a sense, local to our region. Um, what is this circular economy going to look like if it's so centrally 
uh, controlled. In other words, if the jobs are only through the manufacturer, um, it's a really important question to ask. Like, what should a circular economy look like? If we're going to recoup everything, how does it happen? And, and where? Both in efficiency terms, but in, in human terms. Um, and I'm not saying that I think that I'm not, a, you know, I'm not against like the robots, the robots are going to take over, but we need to have this conversation. Absolutely. And we've heard in the past that some of the assumptions on a circular economy for Europe were about re-imagining um, where the jobs, the low-end jobs would be based. And so there were assumptions or hypotheses on whether Southern Europe would be the place where people would do more repair or re-extracting value from existing devices because the cost of labor per hour is lower. But here we're taking it to an extreme where maybe the, that recuperation will be done by a robot yeah, and right. Where there's where? no job anywhere. Exactly. Um, and I guess that's what we're looking at in terms of manufacturing as well. I mean, and that's been the trend, right? Is that fewer and fewer human jobs and um, yeah. more is being automated. Anyway, it's something really important to talk about. Um, and with all the triumphalism from Peach, I didn't necessarily get... Yeah, and almost everything they presented um, seemed like human-free in a way. Like yeah. they show a picture of a yak under a solar panel. They show, you know, they show a robot disassembling a phone. And anyway, that's something. It's my also pet peeve and critique. And I know that iFixit made the same critique because they're essentially trying to support, um, you know, smaller businesses to get involved in repair and reuse and. And additionally, um, we read on a report by Reuters that actually. Um, uh, the VP for Environment uh, at Peach uh, said that their design style is not intended to change in the future. So in other words, they're not looking at making products that will be easier to take apart. So learning from the remarks that companies like iFixit and other people, including ourselves, have made about taking glue out of the equation and making the devices more easily disassemblable and repairable. But they want to invest more and more in high-end technology. So for them, it's easy to disassemble, but not for other people. I mean, it's a potentially very cunning and compelling business case but it is. Uh, but there, well we'll still we'll still hang back and the, be critical the real question i guess and and we're not necessarily able to provide a final answer although we have some ideas is what is the ultimate goal is the ultimate goal that the circularity of products and services will mean that people normal people will not really own any of these devices and they will just use it for a certain period of time and then return it back and get an upgraded device of whatever sort? Um, Or will we have full control and ownership of devices and will we be put in a position so that we can extend the life of things and decide at our own pace when we want to upgrade? I think there's these are two conflicting visions. I think they can potentially live side by side, but I do think... There's very little acknowledgement of that in the discussions about the circular economy, that there are two different potential visions for the way things will play out in terms of our own active role um, as people and as opposed to just kind of let's prioritize efficiency. And it's, it's funny about the circular economy because the same people that might have been that, you know, that criticize socialism and this kind of centralizing tendencies of, you know, of socialism are really getting behind these highly centralized business models. Anyway, we, we, we can it's have a, a whole other radio show about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was one more clip that we wanted to um, we wanted to play for you from the Peach event. 
And this actually probably set off, I would say it actually set off more debate um, on the interwebs than the other ones that we, um, that we played for you. And we're, this, uh, this clip is the senior VP of marketing at Peach, who, um, who's, he's finally getting into the product uh, launches. Um, and frankly, I can't keep track of all the different like, versions of tablets and things that Peach releases. But the way in which the VP of marketing, senior VP of marketing really uh, angered a lot of people was the way he referred to those who use comp- competitive, competitor products. So Ugo, yes. do you want to cue this so, one? Yeah, and it's a very interesting clip, particularly considering what happened previously and all the ref- referring to the environment and energy efficiency. But anyway, let me play the clip. Windows users. Very bad. I apologize. It's not plain. This very okay, moment. well, um, so he was referring to the hundreds of millions of people who use Windows devices and who um, who have never touched one of the Peach products before. And um, he's referring to them as this kind of untouched virgin group of people who should um, should drop, what is it, $750 on a new tablet? Yeah, $748 oh, plus taxes. And in this country will be obviously more in the UK because there is the so-called peach tax, whereby <laughs> if you live in a country that's not the United States of America, the prices are 15% but higher it's, normally. He's talking also about people that have used PCs for five and ten years yes, in a very discouraging and, um, way. I apologize once again, I cannot load this clip now, but basically it says that it's really, really sad that there are 600 million people that use PCs, Windows PCs, that are five years old or older and that raised uh, yeah, there was a laughter from the audience the audience was made up of tech journalists so salivating out of all the, the new smaller size iPad Pro device that was being presented at that moment and so yes so this person the VP of uh, international global marketing was referring to the new device as a device that will potentially uh, be perfect for all these sad people using old, outdated devices. And there was a really great piece that uh, got a lot of clicks on our um, Facebook and Twitter, which is how Apple is clueless to income... Sorry, peach. Apple is clueless to income disparity and the environmental impact of ditching older PCs. And it's a really great, just complete takedown of um, of this presentation. And I'll read from it. Um, the The author writes, Is it a surprise that the world's richest company, with its presenters each worth tens of millions of dollars, would think of a marketing and product strategy indifferent to the economic predicament of millions who research their homework, investigate daycare and commuting options, and plan their tight budgets on a reliable six-year-old Windows computer? And then he goes. Uh, this person goes on to say, "How's this for a breakthrough? A free Windows 10 upgrade that can speed up and modernize a five-plus-year-old PC and make it useful to a low or middle-income family for at least another five years." And actually, speaking of breakthrough, um, Schiller was actually made quite a laughable statement just after talking about the 600 million of sad PCs, saying that the true breakthrough was this wonderful pencil that can 
help you sketch on the I think iPad. You called it revolutionary. The, yeah, the and actually, pen. we we would love to see another type of breakthrough. Um, for example, we don't want to think that all of the very old first breakthrough iPad one generation um, didn't get left behind or became incredibly slow, and Apple decided to just say, "Okay, well." RIP. Um, in fact, we came across this week uh, a fantastic initiative uh, called um, Grador. Grador is an alternative firmware that is meant to help make your existing old iPad fast and uh, uh, useful again. And it was brilliant when I went through the comments to the announcement of this software, someone said, how can I make it a bit less fast? It's too fast. I can't choose the options. <laughs> so anyway, it's what about the products that do exist and they were beautiful and a breakthrough in design and all of a sudden someone decides, okay, this is too old. Well, there's plenty of people that are still using it and because of a software decision um, are no longer able to load all the new apps. Is this the kind of innovation that we are looking for? We don't think so. Well, apparently the people in the audience were. Anyway, um, that's all we have to say this week about, I would say, about Peach. As I said, there's plenty more to talk about there. Um, you're listening, you've been listening to Restart Radio on Resonance FM 104.4. And uh, we have a restart party this evening, correct, Ugo? Yes, it's in northwest London at the Primrose Hill Community center so and the, the, in uh, in camden so it's the closest tube station is chalk farm we'll be there between 6 30 and 9 30 p.m you can find out more on our website the restartproject.org and uh well we can help with any kind of peach product or any product by any other manufacturer that doesn't have such special events um we help with anything that has a battery or that plugs in essentially um but it's not a free fix so you'll come along and learn something and get involved in the repair um thank you thanks for listening and we'll be back next week with some more critical conversation about technology thank you